Fred Pierce is my guest. He's speaking with us from London. Uh, he is an award-winning environmental journalist. He is a part of our Con- Conversations with Remarkable Minds series. And for those of you listening over the Internet, as well as land-based stations, uh, we welcome you. Now, and Fred is the author of two outstanding books, When the Rivers Run Dry, which is very, very powerful, and With Speed and Violence, Why Scientists Fear the Tipping Points. Now, we also are having water battles in the United States. States, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are areas of the West that I keep asking, why would anyone move to Arizona or Nevada? Uh, first, I could understand the beauty. I've been there many times. Family members have lived out there. But the reality is the heat is oppressing. People are using air conditioners 24-7. Uh, black widow spiders in, in the Phoenix area alone, when my aunt who lives out there said, oh, you know, I don't go outside anymore because there's so darn many of them. And then you have the whole problem of dust storms. And then the uh, fact that the aquifers are drying up. There's just little to no water. And it's interesting, when you fly in over a plane, it's all desert, rocky moon shape. Then suddenly you see a patch of green. And people don't realize what, what it costs the environment. And can it be sustained? Yet you'll hear no developers, no city planners say, no, we should stop the city from growing and to try to preserve or conserve what we have. It's just, come on in, neighbor. More people, more taxes, and I'm saying we shouldn't be encouraging people to move to Los Angeles for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is there's, they're running out of water. And even in Florida, or I also live in Florida. Now, I have my own wells, and I don't have a problem with water, but still, even if I could pump my own water out of my own well from my own aquifer, uh, I'm prohibited from doing that because you're only allowed to water twice a day, even in the summer, even when we get rain every day. That's how severe it is. In fact, mm-hmm. this past uh, this past spring, I was driving across Alligator Alley, which is Route 75. It's about a 58-minute drive from the west coast of Florida to the east coast. And um, there were 27 fires. And I heard on the radio they were only able to fight two because they didn't have enough fire trucks, and they were letting the rest burn out. And then you just see thousands of acres of just burned out property, or burned out, um, in this case, Everglades, and Loco Pachobi is drying up. I can walk out, I, in fact, used to, uh, 10 years ago, when I bought my home in Florida, I went to look at Lake Okeechobee, and it was very high. Today, you can walk in 100 yards out where there was water, and there's nothing. So I'm looking at the United States and saying, we have no federal, state, or local plans to finally say, enough, no more people. We can't support it in the future. And the greed and the avarice and the hubris are preventing us from being honest about our own problems. Then go up to the Cascades. Tell us about snowpack and tell us why it's going further up the mountain and it's not reflecting the sun any longer back into the atmosphere and preventing Mm -hmm. some of this. Tell us about our own country and why the Pacific Northwest from California, Washington, Oregon better pay attention because the source of their water for irrigation and industry and living is running dry. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are two, there are two things going on here. First of all, it's getting warmer. And secondly, in, in, out in the West, it appears to be getting drier most years anyway. Um, and those, they're certainly trends. I mean, they're, they're what we've seen. It does look increasingly likely that they are tied to, to uh, man-made climate change. And if that's the case, then they're going to carry on getting worse and worse. 
because climate change is going to get worse and worse. Um, you know, people argue around the ages of that, but that seems to be the basic story, and I, and I can, I can uh, uh, give you the science for that if anybody wants it. But uh, So what's happening is that it's getting drier. That means there's less rainfall. The amount of water falling onto the catchment of the River Colorado, for instance, much the largest river in, in the, out in the West, has declined quite dramatically in the last few years. And one of the, I mean, that, as you say, creates political tensions because the agreement between the states um, in the Colorado catchment and those downstream that rely on its water basically means that the upstream states have to provide a certain amount of water every year downstream. And that applies regardless of how much it actually rains. So you can find that the state of Colorado has to have very strict restrictions on use of water in order to supply its legal obligation to states downstream, which include California, which is not in fact part of the Colorado catchment at all, but has entitlements to water from the river. So you're having these kind of tensions and problems that are arising, and a whole series in the last decade of very dry years on the River Colorado, which means that the reservoirs are running on pretty close to empty, and quite serious problems, especially in the upstream part of the catchment, as I say. The other thing that's going on, which is making things much more difficult as well, is that the ice packs are melting as a result of warming. So if you like, the natural reservoir of of water uh, frozen during the winter and, and then melting gradually through the spring, supplying water down into the rivers, um, is diminishing. Now, while that melting is going on, that's quite helpful because it provides an extra top-up of water into the river because a bit more ice melts every year than uh, forms um, through the snowfall in the winter. But the problem is going to be increasingly that as the glaciers simply disappear, there is going to be no reservoir um, and we will be much more reliant on um, unreliable rainfall for having any water in those rivers at all. And that applies not just to the Colorado, but a whole series of uh, rivers out in the American West that, uh, that take water from glaciers. So, you know, there are serious issues here about the amount of water that's going to be in the rivers and about the reliability of that water in the rivers. And they're all, all these things are going to make life much more difficult in the West. The other thing that's going on is that, is that cities are demanding more and more water. So that across the Americas, um, because water comes with land or entitlement to water comes with land. So cities are buying up farms, not because they want the farms or the land or the crops they could grow on them or anything else, but because they want the water entitlements that go with them. So that's creating a whole series of other tensions. What water there is, is gradually being diverted. Uh, by this route from agricultural use to urban use. And I guess that's inevitable. If there's only a limited amount of water uh, econ in economic terms, it's much more valuable in a city than it is in, in, uh, on farmland because the amount of money that you can make from a given amount of water uh, from growing crops is relatively small compared to the money, uh, you know, the amount of money you can make by selling it in a city. So I think that's a pretty inevitable process. But it's not a process that's being managed in any sensible way way by government or thought through um, uh, back in Washington or in state capitals or anything. It's just happening by, uh, by chance. And of course, that's creating uh, personal tragedies for farmers that have to, have to bail out. It's creating problems for state legislators year by year when there isn't any water in the irrigation canals or the water coming down to the city is in short supply. So we're not really planning for these things in any sensible way. And I think for something like water, I think we do need to plan, and we need to plan now 
for worsening conditions in the coming decades, not just increasing demand for water, but also diminishing supply. We also have the reality that every time we do not eat a quarter-pound hamburger or a pound of beef, we've just saved 12,000 gallons of water that it took to grow one pound of beef, 22 pounds of grain to feed that one beef, and if we grew a potato, it took 60 gallons. A quarter-pound yep. hamburger is 3,100 gallons. So imagine a vegan that is doing a tremendous amount of good for the environment. And uh, so every person that chooses to go meatless is also being an environmentalist and helping protect our water supplies. Now, it may not seem like a lot because 95% of Americans eat meat daily, and uh, we just have to keep getting the message out to hopefully one day they realize that it is important. But generally, it takes a crisis. But right now, the bad news is that we're in the midst of major crisis. The good news is we're in the midst of major crisis. And I say good news not because I want to see anyone suffer, but the only way we ever get Americans' attention is suffer. And then first we go through the blame game, then we act like victims, and you actually go to a store in New York City and pick up a merit badge that says, I am a victim, pay me something. You know, and, oh, God, do we play that entitlement card. Uh, it's, a, it's a worldwide game. Yeah, well, no, the British that. have done it very well, too, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. So we've got to wake up, and I would hope that we would not have to get to the 12 tipping points. Now, I don't want to talk about the 12 tipping points today. That's a separate one-hour program I'm going to invite you back for. But I do want to take on three issues, if you would, please. I would like to take a look at the Amazon, because the Amazon River is also receding, where there is now 1,400 villages or communities that used to be right on the river that are not any longer, with some really serious consequences. I would also like to look at the Nile, and also I want to look at when we do not pay attention to what we do with our land, and we spray pesticides on it, and fungicides and herbicides, that goes down into the soil. That can pollute the water that is down there, the aquifers and the wells, and we have over 40 million wells in the United States. I should say, excuse me, we have 40 million Americans that can no longer drink safely the water from their well because it is polluted by industrialized farming. And if you take a hand of soil in Kansas and you see what we put on it, then you understand why we seem to have learned very little from the Great Dust Bowl and, and the Grapes of Wrath and why we now have a dead zone at the bottom of the Mississippi so large you could put New Jersey in it and have room left mm -hmm. over. Could you talk mm -hmm. about those, please? Yeah, the, I mean, the Amazon, this, the, um, there are a lot of problems on the Amazon. The principal one is really climate change. We're talking about how, how climate change is going to play out in the coming decades. And one of the uh, top predictions, I wouldn't say it's a certainty, but one of the top predictions being made by climate scientists at the minute is that the Amazon Basin, which is one of the, currently one of the wettest parts of the world, you can count on rain most days there, and that rain sustains the rainforest, is going to dry out so much that the, the rainforests, even the ones that we haven't chopped down by then, won't, won't be able to survive simply because there won't be enough rainfall. And that has to do with um, the fact that we call them rainforests. Um, they need rain, but the forests also generate rain because a lot of the rainfall, if you have a large rainforest, a lot of the rain that falls onto the foliage doesn't 
um, get much further down to the ground. It sits there in the canopy of the forest and evaporates back up into the sky, moves downwind inland usually, and falls as another lot of rain. So that the, the forests, by just simply sitting there, are actually generating rain inland. They are, as well as using water, they are and requiring water. They're also rain-making machines. And as you start um, destroying the forest or reducing the rainfall at the edge of the forest, you can get into a kind of vicious cycle in which the rainfall is reduced, the forest is reduced, the rainfall is reduced some more, the forest is reduced some more. And some of the climate scientists that have looked at this believe that by maybe 60, 70 years' time, uh, you can't be precise, but, but that kind of time scale, um, it simply could get so dry in the Amazon that the rainforest will simply implode and the whole area will turn into grassland or maybe even kind of desert almost. Um, and that by the end of this century, we simply could have no Amazon rainforest left anymore. And as I say, that by chopping down parts of it and burning parts of it as we are, uh, or the Brazilians are, that will you know speed this up. But it could even happen regardless of that. And that would be a major effect. And that could have global effect, actually, because the Amazon region is a sort of rainmaker for much of the Western Hemisphere. So the could be knock-on effects um, in the Caribbean, in the US, perhaps even in Europe, some people say. Um, so it could be a major and kind of unexpected uh, consequence of climate change, of global warming. Um, you asked about the Nile. The Nile, I mean, I mean, if you go to the mouth of the Nile, the Nile is the world's longest river drains into the Mediterranean Sea, or it did drain into the Mediterranean Sea. If you go there, you stand on the delta now, literally no water goes into the Mediterranean from the River Nile. It is all used up by, principally by farmers in Sudan and especially in Egypt. Um, all the water is being used for farming. Now that's all right, you, you know, we, we need the water for the farming, but there is literally not, none left now. One of the problems now, of course, is that upstream, we go through Egypt, back up beyond Sudan to some of the countries of Central Africa, like uh, uh, Rwanda and Uganda and Kenya and Ethiopia. These countries are requiring more water, um, but they're not being allowed to take more water from the river because all the water is already being used by countries downstream like Egypt. We have potential conflicts there where Egypt is, is on record as saying that if there's another war, another war in that part of the world, in northeast Africa, it's likely to be over water. Egypt says that if Ethiopia, for instance, started building large dams on the, uh, on the headwaters of the Nile, then it would go to war to stop them doing it because it would damage the water supplies for Egypt itself. So we have, as one of the parts of the world, there are a number of other ones where there are quite significant risks now of, of water wars uh, where countries will go to war in order to secure their water supplies. And when we have the current engineering technology that we have for building huge dams that can block up the entire flow of major rivers and the potential for conflicts if countries do that, a major, I mean, Turkey is damming the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East and stopping water some years getting down into Iraq. Um, now that is a that's one reason why the Mesopotamian marshes in Iraq, the marsh Arab region, has dried out. A lot of that was blamed on Saddam, and Saddam was certainly was part of that. The Egyptian uh, Turkish dams were another part of that. So you have these uh, our ability to 
engineer the environment and to block off rivers to divert water supplies creates huge tensions, especially on rivers where there are no, as is frequently the case, where there are no international agreements on who is entitled to have how much water. Um, and then if you add in the, the pollution issue, as you, as you did, we're talking about pesticides in underground water reserves, industrial pollution getting into rivers, which is, again, is a, a huge um, impact on our ability to use nature's water. If we've polluted it, we, you know, um, we, we, we find that we can't use it or it's impossibly expensive in order to clean it up and use it. And that's a major issue in China now, almost as much as water supply. And there are huge water supply problems in China, but there are huge problems with water pollution. We're having these occasions where entire cities have no water because some factory has polluted the water and the water treatment works can't cope with it. You know, people would simply die if they drank the stuff. So that's like a much larger example of, um, of the, if you like, the individual wells being poisoned, which, you know, we, we get in, uh, in Europe and North America all the time. I appreciate you sharing these insights. Of course, one of the problems with China, not the least of which it's one of the world's largest violators of human rights, and, uh, mm. and yet we have done zero to challenge them on this. It was interesting the president was rightly outraged uh, about what has happened in, in one part of the world against uh, the monks in Myanmar, and should have been. Mm. Didn't say a word about China which also blocked a resolution in the UN that condemned them for their human rights mm. violations. Mm. And, and yet, and we look at the environmental abuse in China. China has a, a scale that is not balanced. On the one hand, they have made some effort to try to deal with environmental issues. On the other hand, 95% of their energy is put into expanding their economy. Uh, they, have a, they have more people making more money off their economy today than Americans have citizens. They have over 300, middle, 300 million middle-class people. These people want a quality of life. So now China can manufacture and even import products for these people who want you know, flat-screen TVs and they want the best cars, mm-hmm. and yet they mm-hmm. have not looked, what is the consequence to the environment? And as a result, California has one-third of its particulate heavy pollution matter coming from China, and yet what has been the effort to try to clean up our own country in California uh, by dealing with China? And the answer is nothing. And what are the Chinese doing after they got this dam? And all the environmentalists I know already had sh- said there were multiple problems with this dam. But China decided we, we're going to go ahead and then in a manifest destiny, and then we'll look afterwards. You know, wasn't it one of the great crusades and the Pope who said, you know, well, kill them all and then let God sort it out? and about who would be right. What do you do with these people? Yeah, China is engaged in kind of breakneck industrial growth right now. You're absolutely right, and you're quite right about the Three Gorges Dam on the Anxi. Environmentalists, me included, have been writing for more than a decade about the problems that were going to come as soon as that reservoir was filled. And the Chinese are, uh, to give them their due, they appear to be... um, uh, um, kind of beginning to recognize that or elements of the Chinese government are. Chinese government's very split. There are areas of the government which are quite concerned about environmental issues, but the ones that are really driving the, uh, driving the government are, are still set on pretty breakneck economic growth. I think we have to be a little bit careful. If we're talking about global warming, China is, as of this year, the largest um, uh, emitter of the gases that cause global warming of carbon dioxide and so on into the atmosphere 
But we have to remember that China has a population of uh, 1.2 billion, so it's a population four times the size of the U.S. So if you like, if you want to divide up those emissions per head of population, um, China, each China. Each Chinese is emitting, if you like, only about a quarter of much as each American, and perhaps about a half or two thirds as much as each each uh, European. So, on an individual level, if you like, they're still not as bad as us. Um, but you know they're they're heading that way. So we do need, as a as a global community, we've really got to work pretty hard to. Uh, um, ensure that uh, if China's economic growth carries on, that they start doing it in a way which is a bit different from the way that we did it. And of course, they'll come back and say, "Well, you know, we, uh, you know, you in the West developed in that particular way. Why shouldn't we?" And I mean, they have a certain amount. You, you can you can see their argument for that. Um, but on the other hand, since we all live on the one planet and we only have one planet, we've really got to find a better way of doing this. But I think it does mean that there are going to have to be some sacrifices from us in the West in order to um, uh, help China take a different, a different route to e- its uh, economic development. Hopefully we can get that together and do that, um, but you do sometimes wonder. And, of course, it's not made any easier. In fact, it's made an awful lot harder by the absence of any real democracy in China. It's very difficult to see exactly how change and how policymaking is, is made in China, and that, doesn't, that certainly doesn't help things. Fred Pierce, thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversation. When we'll take, on, we'll take on the 12 tipping points. That's Fred Pierce in continuation of our series on Conversations with Remarkable Minds. <laughs> <laughs>